0: Welcome back to the program. The Supreme Court is more influential today than ever, from Citizens United to the rulings regarding Obamacare and gay marriage, privacy and free speech. The current court under Chief Justice John Roberts has had and continues to have profound influence in so many aspects of American life, yet it remains a mysterious institution. Like Churchill said of the former Soviet Union, it's often a riddle wrapped in an enigma inside a mystery. The motivations of the nine men and women who serve for life are often obscure, and the internal influences inside the court are even less transparent. What is clear is that the Roberts Court, now almost ten years old, is developing a personality of its own, even while its individual members very often defy the stereotypical roles that the public often assigns to them. My guest, esteemed Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, tries to make sense of this monolithic and opaque institution of men and women, and of laws, in his new book, Uncertain Justice. Lawrence Tribe is a professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School and the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. He is one of our leading constitutional scholars, and some of his students over the years have included John Roberts, Elena Kagan, and Barack Obama. It is my pleasure to welcome Lawrence Tribe to the program to talk about Uncertain Justice, the Roberts Court and the Constitution. Professor Tribe, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm pleased to be with you.
0: Great to have you here. One of the things that becomes abundantly clear in reading your book and really looking at the court is that there's certainly a lot more involved than, as Justice Roberts said in his confirmation hearings, an umpire calling balls and strikes.
1: There sure is. I mean, like a good umpire... One expects a good judge not to bend the rules to favor their preferred team, have them bring home the pennant. But that said, there are huge differences. I mean, I suppose even umpires exercise subjective judgments. One umpire famously described the strike zone as a living, breathing document. (laughs) But, But there are huge differences. I mean, umpires are not supposed to make up the rules, whereas Supreme Court justices have to do that all the time. Uh, When I gave a book talk, and I guess it was actually in the Bay Area at one point, an umpire named Darrell came up to me to make sure I knew about one of his favorite rules of baseball, Rule 9.04C, and I have to admit, even though I'm a baseball fan, uh, I hadn't seen that rule. The rule reads, The umpire-in-chief shall have the authority to rule on any situation not covered in these rules. Well, that's a perfect metaphor, you know, for what the chief justice and actually all nine justices have to do often. And they don't, they don't get the answers from the political party that appointed them. They don't get the answers from any clear and specific text, much of which was written in the 1780s and 1791. Uh, it's really an interplay of nine powerful personalities and intellects nine different sets of worldviews, no two really alike. They've got nine different sets of personal histories that generate shifting coalitions around a a really fascinating and diverse array of principles for interpreting the Constitution and actually understanding what's going on, understanding our national history. I mean, no two justices look at the situation, whether it's a situation of 77 year old grandmother trying to persuade women who are about to have abortions that, that they're going to be making a mistake or whether it's a situation of taking race into account in order to get a more diverse student body no two justices look at that and see the same thing because they've had different life experiences through which they filter whatever they see and and it's fascinating to write about how these decisions emerge. Sometimes they look unanimous, but they really come to the same conclusion along a lot of different pathways. And unless you actually look at the opinions and look at them clear of legalistic mumbo-jumbo and, and uh, sort of various sort of labels that lawyers throw around, unless you kind of get it clear in a way that's understandable you won't understand where the court is going. So what I try to do in this book is is make that picture accessible and make it fun to read.
0: One of the key points there, and perhaps the operative point, is the sense of intellectual rigor that you talk about. The reminder that even though we have become so politicized as a society— that these are not just nine individuals that are politicians in robes, that there, there is an un- intellectual and philosophical underpinning even to decisions we may not agree with.
1: Well, that's that's very true. I mean, But I have to say it's also controversial. A lot of people, especially some of my more liberal friends who are, well, I mean, I'm a liberal myself, but some of my liberal friends are really upset with how right-leaning they think this court is, and they want to parlay the idea that they are really just politicians in robes. And I try to show that it's just way more complicated than that. You you get a cardboard cutout caricature of the justices if you think of them as good guys versus bad guys and one swing justice named Kennedy, you know, or as liberals, conservatives, left versus right, activist versus originalist. I mean, a lot of the fights within the court are within some of the ideological soulmates. I mean, there are fascinating and often hilarious fights, verbal, I don't mean they bang each other on the head, but there are powerful fights between Alito uh, and Scalia. Uh, And Sotomayor, who is very liberal to use the stereotype on many issues, often lines up with the conservatives on, on important questions like the power of the government to regulate drug prices. She, in an important case, joined the conservatives over the frantic dissent of some liberals who said, Sonia, you're turning the clock back to the 1930s when courts made it impossible for the government to protect consumers and workers. Uh, And it's really interesting how the justices differ with one another, not in the way that the political parties do every bit as seriously, but in terms of different philosophies. And it's those philosophies that I think make great reading.
0: And as you point out, there are a number of of issues where Justice Breyer seems to be the most conservative on various things.
1: Right. I mean, for example, uh, Justice Breyer in the recent affirmative action case from Michigan joined the so-called conservatives in saying that Michigan could permanently, uh, and in its constitution, ban any race-sensitive program designed to create greater racial integration in universities in Michigan. And uh, there was an impassioned dissent by Justice Sotomayor saying that Justice Breyer and the justices he joined, like Roberts and Scalia and Thomas and Alito uh, and Kennedy, that they were deeply, deeply misguided. Uh, Justice Scalia is much more protective of privacy in many cases than Justice Breyer is. And when you look at some of the court's decisions about privacy and technology, it's really rare that they have the unanimity that the cell uh, phone decision did yesterday. They often come out the same way in the bottom line, but they have very different ways of getting there. Like the GPS case, where the court held a couple of years ago that when the FBI sticks a GPS under your car and follows you, for a month uh, that that is a search and it needs to get a warrant Uh, some justices like scalia said well that's true because they're invading your property Uh, your car like your home is your castle and they can't stick a gps on there Uh, alito said that's got nothing to do with it i agree that this is something that needs to be traditionally controlled but it's not because they physically touch your jeep with the gps it would be even creepier And more totalitarian if they followed you from afar uh, and got you through the distant microwave signals that you might be emitting. Uh, So, you know, the justices disagree, but they disagree along lines that are really very illuminating.
0: You talk about the life experience of the justices as being critical in all of this, and yet... While there is diversity on the court, there's lack of diversity in so many respects. You have nine lawyers, all of whom went to either Harvard or Yale. And in years past, in, in times past, we've had many non-lawyers on the court, many people with political experience on the court.
1: Right. I mean, right now, except for Ruth Ginsburg, who went to Harvard but got her final uh, law degree from Columbia, they're all Harvard or... Yale, and I, I've got nothing against either. Especially like Harvard, I've been there for decades. It's been great to me. I've got nothing against Yale, but you know what about uh, what about UC Davis or Berkeley or or, or Texas or Kansas University? Uh, and as you say, in the past we've had people with very different life experiences. Politicians like Earl Warren, who had been Attorney General of California and Governor of California like William O. Douglas, who had been the head of the SEC, like Hugo Black, uh, who had been a United States senator. Right now, we've got no one on the court who has ever faced the public and had to be accountable to an electorate. And that creates, I think, a very unfortunate distance between the justices and real life. They they have some sense of it. They live in the world. They read the papers. They, uh, you know, they're they all surf the net, and they're and they all uh, actually remarkably tech-savvy, as the court's decision on cell phones made absolutely clear, but they still live in an isolated ivory tower of sorts, and they all come from the same place in a certain way.
0: Talk a little bit about whether or not it and it certainly seems that way in a contemporaneous sense that the court seems to be dealing more today with issues that have a direct impact on people 's lives with things that people can relate to that seem beyond just the technicalities of the law
1: right increasingly, the court is dealing with things that make a dramatic difference to how we live and whether we can marry the person we love what kind of sex you can have, whether you can vote without a special ID, whether you can own a gun, whether you can are going to risk facing somebody carrying a gun when you go to a shopping center or a library. All of these things that affect the day-to-day lives of people are now the standard fare of what courts deal with. Uh, the court is going to come down with at least one important decision Monday, Uh, in a case called Harris uh, uh, in in which if the court decides as some people think it will uh, that public employee unions cannot charge a fee to the people who choose not to join them uh, to help defray the cost of bargaining on their behalf along with everybody else that public employee unions will basically be dead. Now, That's not the end of the world, but it makes a huge difference. I mean, a lot of people are public employees, and unionization is a very important part of our history, important way that workers can get together to bargain more effectively, and that makes a huge difference.
0: In your view, why is it that there are more cases that have such a direct impact now than in previous times?
1: Uh, That's a great question, and I'm not so sure I have an answer. I I think it's partly because we've come to realize that some of the broad and vague terms in the Constitution, terms about liberty and equality, really need to be interpreted in a way that is relevant to what people regard as central to their liberty. I mean, there was a time when the Supreme Court held back in the 1920s, that that language protected the rights of parents to decide how to bring up their kids. But it was sort of assumed until probably Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 that lots of aspects of our social lives, who we can send our kids to school with, where we can send our kids to school, whether we can marry someone of a different race, that those things were basically left to politics but gradually it became clearer and clearer to people that leaving them to politics means letting the majority decide what your personal rights are. And gradually, justices across the spectrum began to have a more libertarian streak. You know, a lot of conservatives are libertarians as well as liberals, and that streak led them to take a closer look at rules that made it harder for women to decide what kind of lives they would lead because they didn't have control over their reproductive destiny that made it harder for people to make decisions about their personal life. Uh, And for better or for worse, I think for better, the courts have begun to say that majority rule is great, but it's not everything, and that there are certain issues that no majority should be able to take over.
0: And to what extent has the maturity of this court, the fact that they've all worked together now for a long period of time, to what extent is that influencing how this Roberts court works?
1: In the long course of things, even people like um, Roberts, who have been there for nine years, or Alito for eight years, uh, Kagan for even less time, and Sotomayor relatively recently, Uh, each time one of those new justices enters the court the whole chemistry of the interaction changes I mean some people have compared the court to nine scorpions in a (laughs) bottle they're they're sort of bottled up and they have to learn to live together or or die together Um, there were times when for a whole decade there were no changes in the personnel of the court and then the court ends up being a little bit testy uh, justices sort of know what to expect from one another there's a lot of station identification when a justice speaks in conference but now with several new justices in recent years it's been shaken up i think in a healthy way and i think we'll see lots further uh, further changes in the in the near future
0: how do young potential young lawyers see the court today as opposed to how they may have seen it 20 30 40 years ago
1: Well, I think there's a more realistic sense. Some people would call it cynical, but I think lawyers now are much more aware that the justices are not just umpires. They can't be. Uh, That we don't have one, we have nine, because there is no one right answer to many of these questions. They're not robots, they're human beings. And the nature of legal education is such that lawyers no longer buy into the idea that. Judges and justices are simply applying rules that are written down and well understood from the past. Most cases that get to the court get there only because they're hard. The reason so many of them have always been 5-4 is that when you've got questions that hard, nine different people are likely to see them nine different ways. And I think legal education today is much more in tune with that.
0: To what extent does this public notion, and you talk about this in Uncertain Justice, that everything is decided 5-4 and everything breaks down along partisan lines and all these preconceptions that you write about that we've touched on, to what extent are the justices themselves aware of that and what impact does it have on them?
1: Well, some of them are clearly aware of that perception. Justices uh, Breyer and Ginsburg in public speeches in the last month or so have commented on how people seem to think of the court often as a kind of junior varsity Congress. Uh, And none of them want to be thought of that way because they're trying to do a job that they recognize is much more complicated than that. I think the antidote to that is a book like, frankly, the one that Joshua Matz and I have written that shows that that's just not the case. And take the issue of 5-4s, for example. Uh, There isn't a sudden upsurge in the percentage of 5-4s. In the Rehnquist era, when he was the chief justice, about one case out of five, that's 20%, were decided 5-4. In the Roberts era, so far, it's about 20.1%. That's not a dramatic difference. I mean, it used to be much less there was a lot more unanimity and in fact again recently just yesterday we saw two hugely important cases being decided basically unanimously uh, there used to be more unanimity uh, it changed it was about three percent of five four decisions before World War two then um, it climbed to about during the years when Harlan Fisk Stone, who had been the Dean of Columbia, was the Chief Justice. He was an academic. He thought justices should let their differences hang out and make it clear to the public where they disagree. Then it doubled to about 20% under Rehnquist, and now it's gone up just a little more. The fact is that that's just the outer face of the court. Inside the court, the divisions have much more often been 5-4, but powerful chief justices like John Marshall and William Howard Taft, who had been president before becoming chief justice, have managed to kind of herd the cats and have them purr the same (laughs) tune when it came to public appearances. Warren managed to do that in Brown v. Board of Education. So the difference... Between five fours and nine zero decisions, very often is the nine zero decisions reflect more of a political attempt to pr- present a unified front to the nation. Not that there is less disagreement. There's always been internal disagreement, and when there is disagreement, despite the popular myth, it's not often. Although occasionally, it turns out to be along partisan or ideological lines. There are lots of cases. Uh, We've talked about some of them earlier in this interview. There are lots of cases where Sotomayor is with the conservatives, where Breyer is with the conservatives, where Scalia and Alito disagree. Uh, So it's not just politicians in robes.
0: And that is the more interesting statistic, that that I think the number is something like a third of, of these cases from the Roberts court involve kind of unlikely alliances and alignments that form.
1: Right, about a third of the five fours involve strange bedfellows, that is, people who are sleeping with people you wouldn't expect them to sleep with in terms of the stereotypes. Uh, and the fact that two-thirds of the five fours are somewhat predictable uh, is itself not all that surprising. The fact is there are certain issues like race uh, and the role of religion in public life where there are deep divisions that are pretty much in line with ideological views that correspond to the current positions of the political parties. But that doesn't prove that these justices are doing what they're doing, voting the way they're voting, to please the president who put them there. The justices have no compunctions about disappointing the president who appointed them, the politicians who got them there. They don't always dance with the ones that brung them.
0: What are, in your view, the deepest divisions that you see on the court now?
1: Well, probably the two deepest are over race and religion. With respect to race, there are several justices who basically think, sure, we had slavery, we had Jim Crow, but we're all better now. And as long as we don't pay any attention to race and pretend that we don't see racial differences, they'll go away. We've actually gotten to the promised land. There are four justices who think, no way. We have miles to go before we sleep. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of racism left. We still need to make affirmative efforts to get integration. Justice Kennedy is in the middle on that one. He won't agree completely with either side, but that's a deep and persistent division. The other one is over religion, and it was most manifest in the case from a little town called Greece, the town of Greece, uh, in which they have these town meetings that actually perform local government functions but also grant zoning variances and do things for individuals. And They started every meeting with a prayer, almost always a Christian prayer. The Supreme Court, to my disappointment but not surprise, said that that was fine, and the lineup was pretty much the same as it is in many religion cases. There are some justices who think that religion in public life is no big deal as long as you don't actually force anybody to pray. Well, you know, there are subtle pressures, and even if someone isn't forced to pray, being told, well, if you don't like the prayer, you can just leave the meeting and not get your variance isn't very comforting. There are other justices who think that although we are a religious nation, there really should be a stricter separation of church and state. We may see issues of that kind surfacing in the Hobby Lobby case, which is going to be decided Monday, which deals with the question of whether Obamacare needs to make a broader exception for companies that are closely held, not publicly owned, but that are held by families with strong religious
0: beliefs. And what is your sense of how Hobby Lobby is going to play out?
1: Five to four in all likelihood, and on that one, I'm just not going to play with my crystal ball.
0: (laughs) To what extent does the fact that John Roberts and Elena Kagan were students of yours at one point, does that help you understand them and and what they decide and how they think?
1: I think it helps a lot. I mean, take the Affordable Care Act decision, for example. Most people were shocked, shocked that John Roberts voted that... uh, Although Congress couldn't force people to buy insurance, it could give them a choice between buying insurance and paying a higher tax. That's exactly what I predicted on television, both before and after the oral argument uh, he would do, partly because I understand the issues, but partly because I've got a sense of who he is. Uh, A lot of talking heads, especially on the right, like I think Rush Limbaugh said I should probably be relieved of my day job at Harvard and be committed to a loony bin for making that prediction. But it turned out to be exactly right.
0: Are there any issues or cases coming down the road that you sense the court, I won't say is afraid of, but doesn't really want to deal with or feels are even even particularly sensitive, even for this court?
1: Well, you know, whenever you ask a question about this court, you have to remember it's nine justices, separate chambers, separate minds, separate sets of law clerks. Some of the justices are definitely worried that they have no way to avoid deciding the constitutionality of the NSA's metadata programs, the ones that Mm -hmm. Edward Snowden uh, made public. Other justices look forward to that. Uh, They look forward to it. Because even though we know they're pretty tech savvy, their fundamental expertise is in America, American history, American values, the American Constitution. Other justices like Scalia occasionally say, God, we don't know enough about this stuff to decide. But, you know, if they don't, who will? Just the majority. You don't want the government to be deciding what the limits of its power are. That's why we have a court of nine independent thinkers uh, to try as best they can to apply and not always clear Constitution, to an evolving set of circumstances.
0: Professor Lawrence Tribe, the book is Uncertain Justice, The Roberts' Court of the Constitution. Larry, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: You're very welcome, Jeff. I I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very much. We'll take a break. I'll be
1: right back.